0: Today's podcast, I'm going to do another day in the life story of a partner on a project or as some people say, junior partner. That's what mainly referred to principles as. And um, I'm going to refer, to, I'm going to talk about state-owned enterprises in today's podcast because just about every candidate we speak to and our own clients um, are concerned that state-owned enterprises is the worst kind of work in the world. No one likes to be there. It's terrible. I mean, that's the, the mandate out in the market. So I thought it would be a good idea to cover this topic, and, and as always, I'm going to go into a lot of detail about the project and the way we ran the project, the way we structured the project, um, and it's a style I've chosen to to deliver when talking about Day in the Life podcast, but of course, if you think that I'm going to too much detail, you're welcome to ask me to talk about things in more generic terms, which I'm okay to do, but one of the reasons I go into so much detail is because I think it's, a, it's an issue of getting you to understand how we do things, because if I talk in generic terms... Um, I worry that you may not, as the reader, fully understand what we experienced and why um, we made some of the decisions we made. But also, I want you to really try to visualize what a management consulting project is. And of course, I'm going to talk about it a lot from the perspective of a partner, but I'll try to isolate issues that are more relevant to associates and engagement managers and so on. And also, there was a, a, a quite a core personal issue that was going on in this project that I didn't realize at the time but I only realized later and I will bring it up later as we progress because I think it is kind of a um, uh, a nice ending to the story so I'm going to try to hide some of the details of this client but I think you will be able to identify the client so I'm going to try to um, I'm going to try it's very hard to hide the client it was a European state-owned enterprise that used to run power stations right And we were doing a very interesting project for them to figure out um, how they should go about building power stations. So, let me explain when I say building power stations, right? This was a former Eastern European country which had allowed its generating asset base, you know, coal stations um, to stagnate and it had, a few, it had a mix of stations, nuclear, coal, hydro, and so on, and a few bio, uh, uh, or the, as they call it in the West, renewable stations like wind and solar and so on, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, obviously there was no money, so they had no money in which to spend on their power stations, and they let it stagnate, the transmission lines had collapsed, the distribution centers were not working very well, and between, I suppose, 1990, 1989, I assume, the wall collapsed, and about 1997, it there was no reason to expand the electricity base because actually demand had just continued collapsing. The steel industries had collapsed. Re- tourism had not grown as fast as people expected. The middle class had not grown. So demand on the asset base had dropped. So no one had bothered fixing the asset base. And I say asset base, the generating asset base, the power generating stations. But by 1997, 1999, just after the Russian ruble crisis, um, things have changed very quickly, You know, if, if, for those of you who were around during the Asian crises of 1997 and the Russian ruble crisis in the late 1990s, it, the, the talk was similar today where people are saying it's the end of the emerging markets, Russia is never going to come back, but always tell people, you know, you've got to be ready, the market always comes back after a financial crisis, it's not the dark ages, you know, the market will come back, the institutions are there, and this is what happened in this country, the market just roared back, It became one of the number one performing stock indexes that year. And before people knew what was happening, the um, country's demand for electricity was exceeding its ability to supply the electricity. And the country was in a bit of a bind because it's the neighboring nations whereby it would have normally have imported power were also going through the same problem. So it was struggling to import power as well. It had found a way to import some power from friendly um Eastern, um, western european nations uh, but again you know, it's not an issue of friendly this is economics so they were selling power but at a very large cost it was trying to shift the consumer's base off into using gas but that wasn't working very well and that wasn't definitely a long-term solution to the problem it had to fix its generating base capacity and obviously in a democracy if any of you have worked in a democracy if you work for a democracy state or enterprise projects it's horrible because whatever you do to advise the government is going to be pillaged in the press by the opposition. You can do the right thing, but because it was done by the the sitting government, the opposition is going to attack it, no matter how brilliant the idea you came up with. And at that stage, I did not I had not been the person who had built the relationship with his client. Um, another partner had built it, a senior partner actually, uh, and a very uh, famous senior partner had built this relationship and. and I was brought in, um, I didn't really know why I was brought in, I mean we had a good relationship I suppose but this is not my area of expertise um, that we're working on and I, I was a bit surprised to be asked to be on the project to be honest. Um, but basically what the project was, we were, we were doing a type of analysis which is very uncommon, it's a, it's a type of linear programming analysis to work out the mix of power stations. So, what combination of power stations do we need? Three nuclear stations or one nuclear station? Do we need six nuclear stations or five nuclear stations? If we have five nuclear stations, do we need three coal stations or four coal stations and one wind station? So, what mix of power stations will give will 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 will, will generate the lowest cost per uh, megawatt of electricity for the highest return to the regulator and the utility at the lowest risk so it's a risk return modeling that we were doing, we're trying to work out what combination of generating assets would produce the highest return to the utility and lowest cost to the consumers, that's the same way of saying this, different ways of saying the same thing while at the lowest possible risk or at the most acceptable risk. And this is a very difficult project, I must say, for me. I mean, I've always prided myself that um, I've led corporate finance projects. Um, I had no problem dealing with the Wharton MBAs when they came in on projects. I mean, I was pretty tough and I knew exactly what they were doing. But this project stretched me a little bit. And I can honestly say that there were moments of darkness that I thought I'd never find my way out of the technical and theoretical concepts that were being debated. Because believe me, this was a very very difficult subject to understand, and the work that we were doing had never. And the interesting thing about the work that we were doing is that it had never ever ever been implemented outside of a professor's paper. So this the th- initial thinking had been done by this professor in I think the UK or Austria or somewhere like that. As uh, all theoretical. But it had never been implemented. So we were the first people that were trying to implement it. And, and to be honest, I never even had heard of this guy until I came onto the project. And this partner says, "This is what we're going to do. I think it makes sense. It's never been done before, but uh, we have to do it." It's quite an it's quite an elegant way of of fixing the problem, right? Um, very, very elegant uh, way of attacking it. And the name of the professor whose work we were trying to to implement was a guy called Shimon Um and it was very interesting what we were doing but very very complex in terms of corporate finance complexity this to me is probably the most complex thing i've, I've ever seen in my entire life it's a very elegant way to solve the problem and at the end of the day you get this very beautiful analysis but to generate that analysis is painful right you're just going to be sitting there forever trying to pull these very complex linear programming models and and hoping that um, things work. But let me just, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me talk you through how the project was structured and what we did here and the theory and the difficulties we faced and so on. So the project was understaffed as always. Most of my stories are about understaffed projects and by now you should gather that the majority of consulting projects are understaffed, and they're understaffed not because we uh, don't want to put enough people on the project, it's because sometimes you can't predict how much work is required, and that's what happened here. We assumed that five people would be able to do the work with the senior partner, but it wasn't, and the senior partner is not doing a lot of the work. I mean, I'm carrying the load here, right? He's he's involved very heavily because he understands the concept better than anyone else, but um he is not the best person in the world to do the work, and he wasn't doing the bulk of the work. So, we started the project with just five people, including myself doing the core work, and then we have the partners, so it's just five people. And quite a young team, you know, these were quite a lot of Watton people were on the team, and we had a couple of people who had PhDs in electricity planning or electrical engineering, and then it worked in electricity planning uh, in Eastern Europe. So I would say one of the most capable teams I've ever had on a project, but despite their capabilities and their skills, and they were very young. Uh, I think they were the split on this team was, if I remember correctly, two females, two males, and myself. So three males, two females, and the two females had the PhDs in electrical engineering, and they were very capable. I think they pretty much carried the team through big parts of the analysis, right? But then, nonetheless, we still struggled, and and what we were trying to do here is take this theoretical concept that existed on this professor's and a, a group. was even just one professor who wrote it. There was also a professor from China who had done similar work, or Taiwan, I suppose, right? I think that's the the differentiation. And we were trying to take this theoretical work and and bring it into the planning of a major electricity utility. And the challenge here was firstly understanding that when someone writes a paper, they write about a piece of analysis they've done, and we had to take this analysis, extract it out of the paper, and figure out how to build it into an entire strategy planning approach for the client. And I suppose that side of the work went very well because, you know, I could, I'm could i a good strategy consultant leading with large-scale transformation. A large, when I say transformation, yeah, I mean helping a company change its business model. So I'm very good at that work. And I was able to extract this. And one of the key concepts I developed here was this concept of risk where I distinguished between the risk appetite, risk tolerance of a company where I said that, well, let's look at the financial services firms go through, right? You have a risk tolerance, which is the amount of risk you can bear on your balance sheet before you go bankrupt or you need a recapitalization by the government in this case where the government is stepping in and say you don't have enough capital on your balance sheet we have to give you some capital and the other concept was risk appetite which is the amount of risk the board is willing to accept so A lot of the concepts we used were being borrowed from the world of financial services and so on. And we were building these very complex value at risk models because I'm not going to go into the detail here. If you want uh, me to explain the detail, I can always do it for you offline. But basically, if you want to work out the risk around what we were recommending, you had to work out the value at risk, which is the standard deviation or the volatility of the expected cash flows from the assets. So for example, if we told the utility, right, the optimal mix of generating assets will be five nuclear stations of this capacity and this technology type built in this order, this type of coal stations, five of them as well, of this technology type of this size built in this order and priced at this amount, and two, I don't know, hydro stations of this capacity and this type built in this order then those cash flows that those utilities are, that those power stations are going to spit out will have a certain volatility attached. So, and our job was to, to calculate that volatility right, and work out the um, value at risk, which is the standard deviation around the volatility of those cash flows, which, believe me, is an immensely complicated thing to do because I've, one of the things we realized in the project is that the banks were doing it incorrectly. right? And I'll talk you through what we, we realized the banks were doing incorrectly here. And again, I do apologize for going into some technical concepts, but I think it's important to make the subject come alive to explain some technical concepts, but I'm not going to go into too much of them. I'll keep away the very, very heavy um, uh, mathematics um, to the side. So we're doing the project, right? And I think the most difficult thing we, aden- we identified way up front is that people didn't understand what we were talking about. So we would um we, they were, we were given a boardroom next to this chief financial officer's um office. Um and we we're spending a lot of time with the chief financial officer. I mean, maybe too much time, right, with the chief financial officer. I remember once his wife did make that comment uh, when we came into his office at 9 p.m. and she had come to see him and was leaving and she said we were spending too much time with her husband. But the good thing about the chief financial officer, I think he was very open and made himself available and he didn't understand these concepts. I mean, he these concepts we're dealing with were pretty alien to him, but he did make himself available. And he'd come in to try to explain to him you know, exactly what we were doing. In fact, in this particular project, we we had already mocked up what we thought the final slides would look like. And we're talking through, if the final slides say this, what does it mean? What does it mean for you in terms of how you're going to fund this? How much money do you need to ask the government for? And when do you ask it? How much money do you need to raise from the bond markets? Which bond markets, you know? this country we're dealing with had very shallow capital markets, the amount that they were looking to raise could never be raised in this market, they most likely had to go to London and and raise the bonds in the London uh, capital markets. You know, how do you explain this to shareholders? I mean, if you are struggling to understand, we never said it, but what he was saying is that if I'm struggling to understand, is how do you explain this to the shareholders? How do you explain this to the regulator? I mean, how do I tell the regulator that the way we are Measuring the risk of our power stations is totally different from the way you are measuring the risk of your power station. So, I do feel that in this project, the, the eagerness of the senior partner to do this very, very gorgeous analysis may have gotten a little bit ahead of himself. And the complexity of implementing this was far more than we anticipated. I mean, just the board of directors of the utility, the CFO was struggling to understand this we're not even engaged the the regulator yet and obviously that was going to be difficult because remember the way it works is that the regulator determines what your cost base is and then based on what your cost base is they determine what you need to charge customers which becomes your revenue right but if you are telling but and they do that on a risk adjusted basis so they work out your cost on a risk adjusted basis but if we're telling the regulator look we're working at risk on a totally new basis, it's going to be different from your numbers, but we want you to use our risk numbers, I mean, how are they going to approach that? Remember, most regulators are using whack as the measure of risk, but we're not using whack. we're using the standard deviation of cash flows, which is very different. And of course, there were quite a few PhDs in finance that were working at the utility who told us what we we're doing is wrong, but, you know, we had to just deal with that and go along with it. And, and there were certain points where I actually didn't know if what they were saying was right, because my finance wasn't that... You know, advanced and i had to do a lot of reading i mean i'm actually you know when i when i travel i don't have my study in front of me but when i'm at home and you call me when i'm in toronto or if i'm in my in the offices in the in the distillery district i have two studies the study in my home has most of my finance books and there's like 20 of them and i bought all these books on this project to try to understand some of these concepts it was very very difficult i also bought a lot of statistics books to understand some of the statistical modeling uh, and I bought myself a lot of software like AtRisk and so on. And in fact, we learned later on that that kind of software is kind of quite weak for what we were trying to do. We bought access to things like crystal ball and so on. But they really had many material flaws that meant we had to model from first principles. So anyway, we were talking with these clients that didn't understand what we were doing. They were struggling to understand the key concepts. And the bottom line is that it became a really difficult project to try to get these people to understand it what was happening and when I say these people it's not a condescending term it was just everyone was failing to understand it so eventually what I realized is that we couldn't explain it to the client very well because we were not very clear ourselves what was what was happening we, we knew what we wanted to do theoretically but we were we hadn't thought through the practical implications of this we had not spent a lot of time thinking through how the regulator was going to approve this I mean sure we had, we had mentioned the regulator would have to approve it but we hadn't thought through the practical problems let me explain the practical problems here right the way it works is that this utility would need to make a submission to the client. Sorry, it would make a submission to the regulator, not the client. They are the client. And the regulator then comes back and they have open hearings to the public to say this is what the utility wants to charge you. Any complaints. Now, um, in a democracy, people don't really worry about these things. Yes, you get a few experts somewhere in the United States would come in and testify. But in a new democracy, everyone thinks they need to comment. And what we, we saw happen was this, these yearnings turned into this massive fiasco where you know, the opposition party would come in and say, you know, these guys are using some concepts that had never been applied before. Uh, how can we trust them? The future of our competitiveness as a nation and our independence from the former Soviet Union is at stake. It just became this whole political you know, shamble. We had never predicted that. We should have predicted that, I think, know, especially when you're asking a client to do something new. Eventually we saw, well I saw, that we were not getting any traction with getting people to understand this. So what I told the team is we are going to in two weeks hold a brown paper fair. We're going to ask the CEO to take over the downstairs foyer, well I suppose it's the the level foyer, there's no real downstairs, to take over one of the foyers, the main foyer and we are going to put up some brown papers and brown papers for those people who don't understand is where we take a large sheet of brown paper we make it look all pretty with these nice borders where we use blue tape to create borders on the sheets of brown paper and on the sheets of brown paper we use slides or we use other pieces of paper to produce posters and charts that explain the concept so basically it's a chart competition but we call it a brown paper and management consulting i don't know where it comes from but i suspect it comes from cap gemini since they're pretty good at these things and we created these brown papers to explain the concept right and I remember when we were doing it, the senior partner thought it was a bad idea, and we had a i wouldn't say a debate. we never really debated, but we had a spirited discussion about whether we should go ahead with this at the end of the day. He did back off, but he he felt that it was a bad idea because he didn't think it was a good use of time, and he didn't think that it was important for the everyone to understand it. just the key people I said, "Look, it doesn't matter you know whether we do this because I think it gives us." An opportunity to practice explaining it to people as well which I don't think we're very good at so I, I saw it as a benefit to us and the client and my other theory was that if we got more junior people to understand what we we're doing I think that the discussion of what we we're trying to do would percolate through the organization and more people would understand what we we're doing so I for me it wasn't just enough for the senior people to understand it and frankly the senior people were not understanding it so I, I booked out the foyer for two days we started at about 6 in the morning, we put up these brown paper charts on these boards and we put it up around the, the bottom of the uh, fo- around the foyer and there was also this uh, nice cafeteria there so we also put up the charts there as well. So people were coming in and having a look at this and they were staying and so on. But what was very interesting about this is the massive amount of people who came through. It was far, the turnout was much bigger than we expected and because I was the only one who actually understood this concept, remember the senior partner understands it theoretically but he understands the theory that then has to be implemented given the nuances and quirks of the client and only the project team really understands what's happening and on the project team you've got four other people who are modeling different parts of it but they're not at the level where they could I think manage the discussion because it takes a very very good communicator to be able to understand what people are saying and respond to it in a very very careful way to to explain exactly what they're asking but also to you know keep them engaged and occupied so I was going to be the person doing the um the discussions and two people from corporate finance came down didn't know them very well we, we knew them because we were, were working on the projects with them they were the people the client had assigned to work with us but i wasn't working with them so they came down this um lady and this man and they were pretty young you know both mbas they went to good schools in london and so on and i took them through it first and they said say so the first, we, I spent about forty minutes having the discussion with them, taking them through what we were doing, why we're doing it, how this was going to work, and I actually put up examples of you know what the final slides would look like, how they could use it in their department, how they should explain it to people if they asked what they were doing. And I remember at the end of the day, the person said, "Wow, this is amazing! I cannot believe that more people are not seeing this." So clearly, it went well, right? And again. What you notice is the testimony not to just analysis skills but communication skills. Communication skills is what makes or breaks it. So they said, okay, look, it's very important that everyone sees this that counts. So those two people put it upon themselves to go out and create this calendar for me, right? So, they decided that it 's that getting people to just walk across is not beneficial because we because they 're not going to spend time with me, and it 's important that they spend time with me, and that it 's important that the right people spend time with me so the benefit was these two well known young uh, up and comers in the organization decided that a lot of people needed to spend time with me, so they went out. They gussied around the corridor for a few minutes. They came back and said, "Okay, this is the cha- this is the gen- agenda we've come up for you. Every forty-five minutes, we're going to bring a new group of people, and we want you to talk them through what is happening." And it worked out very well because they knew the organisation pretty well, and they brought the right people. They brought people from corporate finance who were dealing with the regulator they brought people from the strategy department, they brought people from the planning department, and because it was spread over two days, they contacted um, uh, station managers, you know, the general managers of the power stations from different parts of the country, and told them to come in, you've got to meet this guy, they're doing some very interesting work, which I think is very important for what you're doing, and it became a very good session, so I had these two assistant tour guides, who were always there, and they were always, you know, there, and actually, they, they played it very well, you know, without a script, so I'd talk, my audience to what was happening if they felt the audience was not addressing an important issue they would ask me the question so that I would answer the question on behalf of the group and it became a very very good session And it also teaches you a very important concept sometimes the people that you don't expect to help you in a project really help you and I thought these two people were quite difficult to be honest they asked very irritating questions initially and they would never do much work but I just built a very good relationship with them and eventually it paid off right here they were and they were making a really big effort to make sure the right people were coming down. In fact, at one point, they even brought across the CEO and make sure he spent time with us. A guy we were not spending a lot of time with us because he didn't think this was important to his work. But of course it was. Because if we determine the sequence of power station build uh, work, it's going to have a big impact on how the construction goes ahead and how he manages these assets. So... I was only going to do this for about maybe you know f- spend a few uh, spend a few hours a day downstairs answer questions on a haddock basis. But what I did is became an official tour guide. I'd arrived at eight o'clock, and from about eight o'clock till about eight p.m. I'd be talking non-stop, running these sessions every forty-five minutes. After two days, obviously, I was pretty much exhausted. I couldn't do much, you know. And I would be I would have this this um, bagel with me, um, and I would have a cup of coffee, and I'd take a bite of my bagel between sessions. And obviously, it took me a long time to eat that bagel, and by the end of the day, the bagel was dry because I was leaving it next to this air conditioning unit, which was sucking out all the oxygen around it. But it went very, very well. And I remember, the big thing for us was talking to the chief statistical, the chief statistician for the utility. I mean, uh, people talk about this guy like he's some kind of you know guru when it comes to statistics, and it was important for many of us that we could convince him that what we were were doing makes sense because he had the the year of the CFO. And we only met him once or twice before. And I remember when I was um, going through to speak to to take him on the guide, I remember the senior partner saying, okay, do you need me here? And I said, no, I'm fine. And said, okay, good luck. This is an important one. And even those two people uh, who had come across and arranged the... um, uh, tour sessions where you know they were buzzing around because they knew this was quite an important session and we had a, a good discussion with the chief statistical officer in you know, a chief statistician sorry and we um, spent two hours discussing at the end he said this is one of the most amazing things I've seen um, and I definitely want to be involved and it's very similar to work that we want to do and we've been trying to do this work for a long time but you know I never understood this is what you were doing so thank you for explaining it to me and it was an amazing session right Especially since I have no degree in statistics and I'm not a corporate finance person, I think it went pretty well. But just some lessons here. You the the ability to learn how to communicate. I, I don't I know that, you know, some associates and engagement managers may take this the wrong way, but I don't think that an associate and engagement manager could do that. I think it takes a lot of training to be able to stand up there and be able to Respond to any type of audience and tailor a situation to them. It takes a lot of work. To, it takes a lot of skill to do that. It's not something I could have done when I was, you know, just an associate or even an engagement manager. Especially when you're dealing with a topic where you know very little about, and you've got to break the topic down into a language that is simple enough for you to understand, and a language is simple enough for the audience to understand. But it went very well, um, and I think that is one of the, you know, things that is great about uh, the top consulting firms they teach you these very important skills that you can take with you no matter where you go you know you have this ability to take any subject no matter how complex it is and break it down into a language that people don't understand and say you know what that's exactly what we've been trying to do but no one's ever explained it this way and I I was very heavy on charts you know I'd take each step of the analysis and convert it into a picture that showed exactly what we were going to do so you know I was teaching some people how to read a normal distribution in the Gaussian a Gaussian curve there, a Gaussian curve is a normal distribution, I was teaching people how to read a normal distribution and what it means to be on the far right hand side of the dumbbell, on the extreme right hand side of the dumbbell, you know, how do we build these models, you know, what is the base variable that we are modeling what is what are correlation coefficients why are they important you know how does correlation coefficients work in the real world what are the problems with using correlation coefficients now how do we take this model and then you know build it how do we know the model works what happens if the model doesn't work all those questions had to be answered in this 45 minute session using this very very nice graphics that i'd spent a lot of time putting together and I, I actually put together graphics i would say because i wanted to own this discussion and i really felt that the team while they were very smart people they were you know what happens with junior people this Spend a lot of time trying to be difficult to understand. It is common. Associates and even to some level, engagement managers spend a lot of time trying to show intelligence there by being difficult to understand. And I didn't want that. I wanted people to understand what we we're doing, and I had to m- create these beautiful slides that were very intuitive to understand and made a lot of sense. And if people could f- could follow my story. So after that session, I think the mood changed a little bit because. You know, there, there was a period where people were not sure whether they would be able to pull this up but after that session the mood changed quite considerably and I noticed people that had started of spending less time with us started spending more time with us because there was no excitement in the organization you know, there is something meaningful that these guys are building it makes a lot of sense we can understand how to use it and I remember when we were putting together the first cut of the analysis we had, we had built these very complicated models because basically the model we had to build was we had to We had to build a model that showed how a power station is built over a number of years. A power station takes anywhere from 7 to 12 years to be built, depending if if it's a coal station up to a nuclear station. And we had to then mimic the cash flows coming out of these. First, we had to build the existing power stations. We had to build a, a model that simulated the existing power stations. right? Then... This model had to show that if we run out of power within 5 years, the model had to decide how we we're going to build further power stations based on the rules we gave it. So if we told the model, well, if, if, we, if we have a deficit of 5%, don't build. If we have a deficit of 10%, build. If we have a deficit of 10% in the north of the country, build this station. If we have a deficit of 10% in this part of the country, build this power station. If you have a deficit of 10% and 40% of that deficit is in the capital, build this station. If the deficit is 40% in the capital, you have to build this station with these rules because regulation is different. So it's a very, very complex model we are building. And beyond the build, I mean beyond the simulation of the build program, we had to also be able to optimize it. And for people who do statistics, you can know it's actually very difficult to simulate and optimize a model at the same time. And they'll teach you that you can't do it. And the reality is actually you can't do it. So we had to build a model that simulates certain variables for us, then take those output and put it into a new model, which would then optimize things. It became quite complex at some point. And when we say optimize things, what do we mean by that, right? We mean by this. Okay, if if you've on a given day, if you have a shortfall of power, stage if you have a shortfall of power and it's winter, right, and you've got to bring about maybe fifty thousand gigawatts of power online, which stations do you run to bring that power online, right? Moreover, if, for those of you who who know our power stations work, peaking stations, stations that run when the power peaks, you know, when it's maximum demand. You don't use coal stations for that. You use peaking stations. You use either um, uh, gas plants or you use hydroelectric dams, right? Now, how do you create power from the hydroelectric dams? Well, you've got to let the water fall, and you've got to store the electricity, right? Alternatively, when you have excess power, you've got to pump the water back up so that when you need the the power you can then release the water and power your peaking station. The model had to work out all of those things and it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my entire life and it took me a long time. I remember I would only test the model when the team had gone away for the day. So the team would leave sometimes at 1 o'clock in the morning. I'd stay there until 2 o'clock. I'd turn off all the lights. I'd turn on the computer screens. We would have an array of computers in front of us doing different parts of the model. And I'd I'd put myself in the shoes of a consumer or the regulator or the opposition. I'd say, okay, it's 6 p.m. on the worst winter day. We're running out of power. What's going to happen? What would we expect intuitively to happen in the country? What is the model saying we, we should happen? Why are the numbers different? Each model here, when we ran the model, because we're just doing a Lindium no- programming, crunching many numbers, each model took about 6 to 8 hours to run. So remember something, it's not as if we could continuously just press F9 and it would split out numbers and test it. No, we had to plan the tests very well. right? So we'd spend the morning planning the test and then run it at night. Right. So I would then plan it with the team at around 9 o'clock in the morning. We'd bounce around ideas of how we'd run the test when the team goes away for the day. i then stay another two hours just to run the stream ahead and make sure we're running the right test. Because if we run the wrong test, we've lost nine hours. And if you start the test at 3 PM, three a.m., by the, team, the te- by the time the team gets in, which is about 8 a.m. the next morning, there's still four more hours to go, Right. The models finish running at about 11.53 a.m., 12.00 a.m. We then collect the data. We then have to put it into the uh, optimization model, which, which runs pretty quickly. That runs over about maybe five minutes. But the point is there's a lot of thinking that needs to go in here. It was a very difficult uh, project for us. I would say that it's one of the few times that I know. people. I always tell people that when you join a consulting firm, you don't have to have modeling skills. But I always tell people, if you are looking to join the corporate finance practice and this project was under the purview of corporate finance, although not really, but... To studded with all these corporate finance superstars, you need to have strong modeling skills because what we were doing was very, very difficult. And I would say that, um, you know, even though I was there and I was leading things, I was not the person leading the modeling, I was there leading the conceptual understanding. So I would tell, I would spend a lot of time explaining to the team, this is what I want the model to do. This is how I have to build the model. This is how I want depreciation to work. This is how I think you have to handle the issue of re pumping water up the power stations. This is how I have to handle the problem of. W- electricity that is lost on a transmission grid you know when you send electricity down a transmission grid it loses up to 30 to 40 percent of the power so you know we have to pick the transmission route that loses the least amount of power that is most obviously cost effective at the lowest risk all these questions had to be debated obviously we're not trying to answer every question but just you know the key question we had identified became became a very difficult project and what had happened is that by the time we had started running these you know um nine, eight hours uh, test on the model, we had reached the point where we could now produce the first cut of the analysis for the client. And the, the, the issue became, you know, what do we present to the client? Do we present reams and reams of analysis? Do we present how we built the model? Do we present the implications It's difficult to do. I mean, people who build complex financial models and explain things to clients know that it is very difficult to explain these things. And I made a pretty tough call here, right? And I overrode the senior partner on this. And I fought for this very hard. And I said, look, I spent 45 minutes explaining to the chief statistician of the company what we were doing, 45 minutes. And that turned into a two-hour call, two-hour session. Can you imagine how long it will take to explain one slide to to the executive committee who have no background in this subject it's going to take us forever and we're going to lose them they don't have to know the details this is what we're going to do we're going to have two packs we're going to ask the executive committee to nominate trusted lieutenants who can verify the details for us but when we meet the executive committee i'm going to present two slides one slide on the analysis which is this It's basically a graph that we had mapped. I mean, all that work to produce one graph, you know, it almost makes you want to cry, but it's a beautiful looking graph, so you cry out of joy when you see it. We're going to produce, we're going to show them one graph, and we're going to show them their options out of this initial analysis, but we're going to make it very clear these are draft options, and these options may change. Depending on how we uh, get better data, because the data we were using was not perfect, the, the utilities were still trying to get us some of the data from their power stations and so on. But I had come to the conclusion that no matter what accuracy they had given us in the data, we're not going to change the numbers by more than five, ten percent. Because you know, that's just the way it is. There's just so many assumptions built into this that more accurate data is not going to make a big impact. So I produced, so I went with the gamble of sending in just two slides, and those two slides became a two and a half hour discussion. Right, first I'd explain to them what is the x-axis what is the y-axis? Remind them what the analysis is. What was the key question? What does each dot or point mean on this graph? How do you read risk? What is risk? If I told you you have a standard deviation of, if I told you your risk tolerance is $13 billion, what does it mean in practical terms? Right? How does the market interpret this? What does it mean if you take on more risk of If you take on risk of $14 billion, what does it mean to take on more risk of $14 billion? How does that $14 billion lay out onto your balance sheet? A very, very long discussion. And I ran that discussion because I thought I was better able to do it than the senior partner. And he deferred to me. And he let me run the discussion. But I really enjoyed it, right? I mean, I remember the... um, the um, CFO and the Chief Risk Officer, a very nice lady, the Chief Risk Officer, told me this is one of the most amazing things she had ever seen, and it really explains a lot. And she really wants to be able to take this to the regulator to explain some of the decisions. And and one of the things we had not realized at that point was that this beautiful graph, which which is plotting the movement of the utility on this map we had drawn, was actually a very powerful strategy tool, right? Because, for example, let me give an example of what it meant, right? So we have these dots on this matrix. Right? We, we have return on one axis and risk on one axis and each dot represents the utility depending on a decision made. So let's assume that the return shows 5% return and the ca- and the risk shows $23 billion risk you're putting onto the balance sheet. Right, That $23 billion risk and that 5% return only happens if you take certain decisions. So for one of the options available to the utility, that is the dot. If the utility takes a different set of decisions, a different option, you get another dot. So we can plot out the different strategic decisions the utility makes and see how it appears on this map which became a formidable negotiating tool with the regulator. So, for example, rather than getting into arcane discussions about how to work out whack, which, believe me, the regulator loved doing—you know—they'd want to know, you know, how they're going to work out whack, what is the regulated asset base, how they're going to depreciate the asset base, where does the asset base end? We'd say, okay, that's fine, that's all fine and well, but let us take few decisions on this. Let's say that we go with your interpretation, right? Where does the dot move? Let's say go with our interpretation, where does the dot move? Which changes the entire discussion. Rather than discussing whether we should increase the regulated asset base by $2 billion or reduce it by a $1 billion, we could then say, okay, if we go with your decision, our returns drop by 0.5% and our risk increases by 2% or $2 billion, depending on how you want to, you know, phrase it. Now, we can debate how we calculated this. But let's leave that for later. But let's assume the numbers are right. Are you comfortable with this? Are you willing to permit the utility to take such an action? And what does it mean if we take such an action? Who is to bear the cost of the risk? Is the utility debate or is the government going to bait because you're forcing us to take this action it became a formidable strategy tool and it actually taught me a very important lesson in strategy strategy is not about making things difficult here we took this really complicated model which gives me i still have a copies of the model on one of my laptops at home and sometimes i run the model just for fun and now that computing power has increased you know Maybe 100 fold since we built these models. I can run them faster, but they still take three to four hours to run. So they're quite heavy models, right? I realized that this power of strategy is taking complex things and putting it into a language that makes everyone understand it. And it became this such a, a beautiful way for the CEO to negotiate with the minister. He'd go to the minister of industry and he'd say, "Okay, these are the decisions you want me to take. We've run the numbers, and this is the impact, right? You want me to build. You want me. To, you want us." To cut down our coal plants because you want to join the European Union, that's no problem. But if we cut down our coal plants, our returns are going to drop by 2%, and we add $23 billion of risk down balance. I'm just making up the numbers here, right? But we add so much billion dollars of risk balance. You say, I'm okay to do it, but you must understand that this is the impact it's going to have on the country. $23 billion we could lose at any given time if the worst-case scenarios, and these are the worst-case scenarios, transpire. Right. What happens if we if for example if we if we lose the ability to store the power generated from the wind farms? What if we lose the ability to extract power from the wind farms on a non-windy day, right? What happens if the grid cannot handle the volatility of power coming onto the system, the, the transmission grid, it, the way it works is that it works on a tension system. It needs to be tense in the sense it needs to have a certain amount of power coming onto it to keep the grid up. If you take the power off the grid, the grid basically collapses and takes time to be put up. In technical terms, but the point is that all these things we need to model. At the end of the day, what I really liked is that uh, the, the board meeting, which happened after the executive committee meeting, and we, we are not allowed to present to the board. The client doesn't like consultants presenting to the board, but we were asked to attend to answer a lot of the questions. So the CEO presented the one slide, and he did a pretty good job, I thought, because I, mean, I spent a lot of time coaching him a lot of time coaching him i mean i spent time at his office coaching him and he went to his house to coach him and he he, he used it as a wonderful tool to explain to the board look here are the options right and tell me what you think of the options and the board went into this long spirited philosophical debate Remember, the board is packed with a lot of government appointees labor is on the board and so on A lot of philosophical debates about what it means. Oh, we've been to Denmark and we saw what a huge impact renewable power has on the business and it's so good for the economy, blah, 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 all. Obviously not true because there's no numbers behind it, right? I'm not saying that it didn't have an impact, but they don't know what kind of impact. And then he said, okay, that's wonderful. We've modeled the impact. And... Because they've appointed proxies beforehand to go through the model, the, the, the veracity of the model or the accuracy is not in debate because their proxies have are in that meeting and say, Yes, we've been to the model and we're happy with what it's saying. So you, you know the model is not beyond question here. Or at least it's 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 questionable but within reason. Obviously all models are questionable, but within reason. And then the CEO put up the ones that says, okay, if these are the com these are the most popular options, five options. We plotted them. This is the impact. Now I'm a believer that we shouldn't go with this option because this is the impact. If you as a board are willing for us to bear this cost and this risk and this low return, I think that we are we are not going to help the country and we shouldn't be able to go with it. But he did a very good job, right? Of you know standing up there with his laser pointer and his Armani suit with his you know French cuff shirt and talking them through it. Excellent job. But the point of this project, and the reason I like this project, because it was so painfully difficult. I mean, I have had been on more difficult projects that were conceptually difficult, but I think this project was difficult because of the subject matter. The math was hard. The finance was very hard because we were in a boundary area where work was just being done in this field. We had a partner who was, seems to be excited by clever concepts from business journals and the journal of science and the journal of mathematics and so on and liked importing them into consulting projects. But beyond that, the, to, as the project was ending up, the, uh, we had a, had a long discussion with the partner because uh, now that the project was going well, the partner is very happy to talk to you about things. He's Yuri's best friend, right? You're making him look good. And he comes to me and says, "Look." I'm going to tell you something and you can't tell anyone about it but I'm telling you because I trust you and I think it's important you understand why I've not been in the office certain days and why I haven't been available at certain times. I've made a decision to leave the firm to start my own company but I want to continue working with the firm and working on similar kind of work for more utilities. Now, I was not sure how to respond to this because what is he saying? He's saying that he's going to use the IP that we had developed. To start a new company and the only reason he hadn't told us earlier is because he wanted to make sure that we wouldn't kick him off the project and you know use and protect the ip for the firm i was not very happy with this but basically we and and i said look you know that's nice but i need to think about this and i wasn't even sure what i was thinking about i was a bit a little bit upset about it but then he said look it's not that i want to use the ip i'm not keeping anything i actually don't want to keep anything and what i want to do is i want to work by myself But I want to continue working with the firm. So the reason I'm mentioning this to you is because I want to continue working with the firm. I want to speak to other utilities to do this work and I want to be the relationship person, the person just talking to the CEO, but I want the firm to do all of the work. So I'm not building a company. It's like I have 20 people working for me. It's just gonna be me. I want to do more strategy level stuff in finance, uh, but I want a team that can deliver it. So I want the firm to be involved. So I was very clear asking us to join you. And he said, no, I mean, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't join anyway. But I want the firm I want to continue working with the firm. So I said, Okay, that's good, but why are you telling me this? And then then comes the zinger, right? I mean at this point the new senior partner for that part of the world had been appointed and he didn't have a good relationship with this senior partner. In fact he didn't like the senior partner, which is why the senior partner was leaving. And the moral of the story, to cut a long story short, is this senior partner that I was working with on the project wanted me to go with a new managing partner for the region and tell him what a good job he had done, which was quite funny, and why it was important that we continue working with him, which I thought was quite hilarious, right? Because I just made principal at that point i wasn't you know that well known in the firm in fact the managing partner for the region didn't know me very well i'd met him a few times but you know corridor chats i didn't know him bottom line is i didn't know him i didn't know how he was going to respond to things i didn't know if he'd be upset out of this in fact i didn't even know what the senior partner was leaving at done to be so hated so yeah i was serving as a source it was a reference point for someone who i didn't know very well but you know, it's life. You got to make. You got to take uh, decisions. And I said, okay, look, I will speak to the senior partner for you, but you know, it's obviously out of my hands. So I'll do the best I can. But you know, a lot of things worked well in the project. The project became very successful. The CEO of the client, excuse me. Was always very proud of the work we had done. He was talking to everyone about these consultants who had come up with this very clever way to analyze his business and create a whole new way for them to think about strategy and the return of his business and the risk of his business and so on. And of course, he was talking to so many people that while we're winning more work and we're building more relationships, we're winning some fantastic relationships you know we, we were talking to people we could never have spoken to before because we were just so new in this field we we're so new in the utility space and so on. We we're just continuously building our skills and so on and we continuously started taking this forward and I decided that I would speak to the senior partner the the, sorry, the managing partner for the region at a later stage and I had a discussion with him quietly and I said, look you know what the project had gone very well. And I think that this is a very interesting way to approach strategy for utilities, and it is definitely something we want to continue developing. We, the work we have done, by no means do we fully understand all of the different um, ways we can leverage this into the client, or all of the different insights we could generate. We, early days, we need to do more of this, and I think the only way to do more of this is by doing more of these projects for utilities. And I believe that uh, I know that the. Um, senior partner on the project has told you he's going to leave but i think we should continue working with him he understands we've built a good relationship in the sense that he understands how to manage the client on the conceptual stuff and he needs somebody executed which is me and I think we have to keep the relationship going. The managing partner was not happy about it. You know, when someone just puts their hand on their chin and says, hmm, hmm, hm m, m, and they're not responding, you can see they're not happy about it. And in at the end of the discussion he did tell me, look, I'm I need to think about this. This is something we don't typically do. I mean I have all respect for this for the senior partner, but if you choose to leave the firm, you for confidentiality reasons we have to be very careful what we release. I had more discussions with the senior with the managing partner and with the senior partner. And the good thing is because they're serving as go-between us, actually building a relationship with the managing partner. Eventually we chose to work with the senior partner once he set up his own one man show. And it didn't last long. I mean, he was so closely integrated with us that within two years he came back into the firm and just continued in the firm. And because he had done so well, you know, building so many great relationships and the work was so successful that I think that he kind of had proved himself that he was committed to the firm. And I think it was the issue that why the managing partner didn't really seem keen to have him around is because he didn't seem very committed to the firm. He was flying around and doing his own things, his own research and publishing stuff here and there, but not really committed to the firm. And over those two years, he had really worked well with us to do some very eminent work. He didn't even use other business cards, you know, he used the company, the firm's business cards. He presented himself as a firm. Um, he didn't even build clients separately. We billed the client. We gave him a certain percentage. So, you know, no one even knew he had left the firm at one point. He just didn't want to work at the firm. So, he was like doing, he was like a partner for all intents and purposes who had stripped away most of his responsibilities and he was just a senior advisor kind of role. Uh, and they eventually, you know, I told him after two years, you know, why are you doing this? You know, you're essentially a member of the firm. You know, don't give up all your benefits. Just come back into the firm and. Work on this reduced responsibility. Just do research, which is what you like doing. Do your fancy corporate finance analysis and research, and work with clients. So that worked out very well. But I think the the this interesting thing about this this project, what I what I particularly liked about it is that um, it comes back to the point I stressed earlier that communication is very important and the ability to take complex subjects and make it work. I also realized in this project that we laugh a lot. I know this I'm being honest MBA MBA students were not engineers business people they tend to ridicule the engineering pe- colleagues on projects now you have a science background you have an engineering background and uh, we are I have an MBA from Harvard I went to Stanford blah 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 uh, this project showed me that w- if you can merge technical with business you have a formidable formidable machine and what set us apart on this project was that we had these two ladies who were really good at understanding the technical side of things not only were they good at understanding the technical side because they were consultants they could take that technical information and translate it into business information which is what really set us apart right but we had this machine that that you know when we went and spoke to the chief systems engineer there was no doubt that we knew what we were talking about. We knew how their systems operate. We could calculate flow rates and so on, and we knew how that translated into the model. There was never a doubt where they, they were, you know, people were not, at the beginning, people were making these comments ah, these MBAs from the United States, what did they know? They're going to teach us some business nonsense. But then when we sat down with people and we showed them our understanding of their technical operations, we just killed that discussion immediately. And that's the second lesson. Technical people have criticized a lot when they apply into consulting firms they told you you're too technical your phds you're too technical yes phds are too technical but if you have a partner who knows how to harness that technical skills and use in the right way my god you are unstoppable and it actually became a, you know something that i've picked up very carefully is when i'm staffed onto projects i make sure i have the right technical skills with me who can nullify any argument or disputes I have from the technical team and the client to say that we don't understand how their business works at a technical level. Of course, you know, if you've done work in utilities and so on, you understand that in that case, technical issues play a bigger role. It plays a major role. Some other industries probably less of a role. You know, if you're helping P&G launch a new product in Japan, it's probably less of a role. Um, but in the utility business, it plays a very big role. And that's my second lesson, you know. I think that we give short we, we we shortchange technical people. We box them and we put them in this horrible space that we don't allow them to grow and allow them to groom themselves. But you know, if we didn't have that Wharton guy who could do this magical linear programming, I mean he was a brilliant at, at understanding linear program, an MBA, but he it clearly was not an unusual MBA. PhD before an MBA as well. But he because he understood linear programming so well, you could take something that was ridiculously complex and find a way to summarize it and make it very easy to implement. That's the beauty of being an expert, right? You don't make things more complicated. You make it easier, but it works better. And so that was a big lesson for me. The third lesson here is that (coughs) is that at a certain point, you're going to have to remove the training wheels. You know, Uh, the senior partner can only help you so much. At a certain point, if the project is really pushing the boundary of what is known and is really breaking new ground, the senior partner can't help you. The team is alone. You are out on your own. There's no one that's going to rescue you. You can't call up an expert from the firm and say, you know what, we're doing this, we're struggling, what do I do? You are the expert. You've moved into an area that no one can help you. You're the first human in space. There's no space station to go to if you're running out of oxygen. You are alone. If you misplan this, you are dead. You are going to die. It's very lonely in space. They're probably not going to recover your body as well. So that's my second lesson. When you push the boundaries, you are in a very dangerous space, not because... You're doing something new for the client, but because you have no one to call on, it's a it's the phone's never going to ring. You're never going to call up an expert. Your team is the experts, and you and you are learning as you're going ahead. The fourth thing is that do not underestimate the power of doing simple things to communicate complex things. I mean, when I was Telling people we need to do brown papers to explain things to people. said so People said, no, we, this, we're never going to do this. It's never going to work. Why are you doing this, Michael? It's, it's just too complex." He said, look, it's going to work. We need to build trust. We need to build understanding. We need to do these things. So I enjoyed that project a lot. I mean, we have had other difficult projects, but this was difficult for other reasons. I like the work we're doing. I mean, I still look at the slides every now and again. I still run the model every now and again just to look at what we built, which is very difficult, you know, it became a hallmark within the firm that we could actually do this kind of work, very technical, very conceptually simple, we're taking some things that couldn't be done before, and what I really liked at the end was that risk-return graph that the CEO was then using to map his strategy, I enjoyed it, the hours were long, I mean, I'm not going to talk you about the hours and so on, I just wanted to talk you through a particular project, the hours were obviously long, I really struggled on this project, um, um, and I was maybe a little bit younger then as well, so I could handle the the long hours. But at the end of the day, when you are pushing the boundaries on something totally new that no one had done before, I think that in itself is motivation and it keeps you going. But the point from the story is that you know I want uh, we have a lot of PhDs in our program, and I do want PhDs to understand that yes, you know you can bring a certain skill to consulting projects that sets you apart. But here's the important thing for PhDs you need to know if you have that skill i see a lot of phds will argue that they know something and it's wonderful they need to apply it but they can't explain it to me if you can't explain it to me then unfortunately it's never going to be used right and even if you can explain it to me don't just assume because you have a phd or an expert in an area i mean i do believe the people we had on the team today while they were not getting any global recognition for what they were doing they were very good right and we had spoken we had in fact during the course of the project we contacted the chinese researcher who had done the work theoretically with us not with us uh, alongside us independently and we, we 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 actually wanted to speak to him about what he was doing to see if we could use him as a as a guide and we had realized that two weeks into the project we had pushed the thinking further than what he had thought up we had pushed the thinking much further and solved a lot of the problems he had not been able to solve in his paper and he actually became worthless to talk to him any further again the idea of being lost out there if you're pushing the boundary you are the only one you could call on so when you want to push into new areas and take a client into the new areas you better be sure that your team can go the course because if you fail there's no one to call on and again PhDs always understand you can bring a certain skill but you must know how to deploy that skill onto a project Right and and to be fair, you know, when when you have a technical skill like like a certain area of corporate finance, certain area of linear programming, it's a lot easier to deploy that skill. When you have another skill, like a way to analyze a certain strategy problem, it's a lot more difficult. You know, Harvard economics PhDs. I've worked a lot with them. I found them to be quite easy to work with because they do have a certain unique skill to deploy. But I've also met people who have a PhD in sort of a more softer areas like strategy and leadership. I found it much more harder to deploy those skills. I usually deploy those skills when we're helping clients understand leadership issues in the organization. But by and large, when it comes to analysis, I want to see tougher analytical skills deployed. As always, I'll be happy to respond to any comments and I look forward to your comments.